So at this time, before we get started in the sermon this morning, um, I'm going to invite up uh, Christian Piscina, um, and, and he's just going to share a little bit about his testimony, his walk, where he's, where he's been, and actually also to share with us a little bit about where he's going. So come on up, Christian. Here we go. So Christian, you want to just share a little bit uh, with us about uh, maybe about your faith walk, your journey, and, and, and then share with us a little bit too about, about what, what you got going on and what, where you're headed. So go ahead. Okay. So my name is uh, Christian Pesina, and uh, Troy asked me to share my story with, with you today. Hold it up a little closer. There you go. And how yeah. I came to Christ. Um, I was born in a small town um, in Argentina, and I grew up in a, um, a Catholic family. But we had little knowledge of God um, or the Bible. Like we went to we went to a school, and the school would take us to church, but it never um, we never grow. On, on the God war and so it was it was like you know you're never you never learn how to follow God or 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 just get um, you know your spirit you never never get into the actually in a church or enjoy you know enjoy a church as a family or past, you know, get to know other people and what they believe, and and so um, I was 17 years old when I started traveling around the world uh, with my work with horses, and I did that for a long time, and in 2007. Um, I was working in Florida when I met my wife, Tessie, and Tessie and I become um, good friends, and she, uh, she often tell me about God and the work that he has done in her life. Um, so a couple years later, we got married, and we continued traveling um, all around the state um, with the horses. And then, um, and then we started having children. And over the next 10 years, um, you know, we, we were on the East Coast. And we're very, you know, busy with work and, you know, just... Uh, trying to um, get ahead, you know, now we have two kids and, um, you know, all, always, uh, so at this point I, I still have a little injuries on God, uh, but no, you know, not to the point that. Um, not making a difference in your life much, huh? Right. Yeah, gotcha. No. Um, so uh, I would go to church and read my Bible to support my wife and her relationship with God. And, and with you, probably, right? 
probably, probably help things at home too a little bit, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I did not, like, honestly, I did not have a desire on me to have God in my life. That was, that's where I was. Then in 2016, um, my son was six months old and my daughter was two. Um, I received a job offer here in Sheridan and we moved our family across the country. It began a real life, uh, sorry, a new life here in Wyoming. Then a year into my new job, I made the biggest mistake in my life, a mistake that cost me my career, uh, our home, and our nearly my wife and my children, my family. Excuse me. Um, at that point, I feel that I have hit the bottom of my life. And as I was driving, one afternoon, I began to feel that weight of what I have done. And I had to pull my vehicle off the road. And I began to cry as I feel dead inside. At that moment, God took hold of me. And I feel God laid his hands on my shoulders and tell me that he's real. That moment changed my life forever. Since that day, I have been working to seek Christ, and I build a relation with him and heal, heal my family. And, and I know, now I know that God has been, always been with me. And I can see how God used all, all, the, all those things to bring me to him. He has used the bad for his good Amen. to do a work in Amen. me and my family. Yeah. My wife and I continue to see God. And to spread God's word. So this is my testimony of someone that grew up in a in a small town and no no decide um, 
no following God at all, no, uh, never, um, never go to church, never, um, never understand why, you know, people will go to church. It was like, I don't understand why people go to church. But <laughs> now I know. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm planning to visit my family in Argentina next month. Yeah, you're leaving a week from tomorrow, right? Yeah. A week from tomorrow, he's headed to Argentina. And I'm taking, I'm taking all these Bibles, the church, get to me for free, and obviously try help me to get them. And they're all in Spanish, so, um, so I'm so happy, and I'm so excited to take the uh, Bibles with me. When I go down and share with my family, and I'm looking forward to tell to tell them what God has done in my life. Thank you guys for your time. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for doing that. It's a blessing when we can hear from one another and, and, and understand where, where one another come from. I was a lot like Christian. Christian and I kind of come from a pretty similar kind of background. Like, like I, was, I was a horse guy, too. Christian and I actually never got to really work together. He kind of came, came to Sheridan after I had kind of gotten out of stuff, but... But uh, same kind of deal, like when people found out that I became a Christian, they almost fell over. They couldn't believe it. Um, huh, Jeannie? Yeah. It's shocking. It was shocking. I, I, me too. I almost I still can't believe it. I'm like, what the heck? I don't know how Jesus snuck up on me, but he did. That's what he does. So, yeah, Jesus, he takes those, those, those dark times sometimes, those, those moments that, that we think... That, that we see just nothing but failure and falling, and, and, and he's ready to, to redeem because this is who he is, the Redeemer. So here we are, Mark. We're going to jump back in. Chapter 15, verse 21, we're at the crucifixion now. Um, interesting timing on all of these things. I, I, find, um, I, I find the crucifixion just a an interesting thing in itself, just how disturbingly comforting it is that, that Jesus would, would do this on our behalf. And, and, and so as we look at this, we, we want to just consider all, all that he's done in this. And, and again, like we talked last week, this is the crux of the faith. And the word crux itself comes from the word cross. It means the central thing. This is the central theme of being a Christian. This is, this is what Christianity is all about, really, is this cross, and, and, and ultimately, we're going to see next week, we're going to get into the, to, the, to the better part of this, the resurrection, but, but 
ultimately, this is the place where our faith really uh, lays. This is the groundwork for, for our forgiveness. This is the, the groundwork for salvation. This is the work of God on our behalf so that we might have life. So we see that Jesus has been anointed already in Bethany. He's been anointed really as king, but he's a different kind of king. He's not a king with all of the pomp and the splendor and all of these kinds of things, but he's a king no less. So let's read. We'll read here from, uh, from uh, 15, verse 21, and then we'll go back through it again. And it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when Jesus, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And he was in Galilee. They followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so today we're looking at this and we're just calling it obedient to the point of death. Now... It's an interesting thing. It says when the sixth, uh, it says uh, that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the of a skull. And, and so, so here we see that that Jesus. Remember, he's been flogged. Uh, Pilate has has had him 
flogged. And remember, this was a, an, an incredibly brutal affair in itself. The, 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 the thing that they used to, to do this, kind of the cat of nine tails things, was it, at the end of the leather thongs, it had pieces of glass and sherds of pottery and bone and things like that. So, so when they whipped you in, it literally hung into the flesh and then they would pull it out. And so it just, he's been, most people, many people died even from that process right there. It was brutal. And the Romans were, were incredibly brutal people that were very good at inflicting this. And the whole of, of, of the crucifixion, the, the whole of this thing is really all about humiliation. It's about humiliation. Everything about the cross is, is to be humiliated. As a matter of fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you would, it was illegal to have you crucified. It was the worst form of capital punishment that the Romans had. We, we get the word excruciate from, cross, from the cross. It's got that crux word in it. Again, it, it means the pain of the cross. It's, it's this idea that when it's excruciating, it, it's, it's what it is to endure the cross. And, and so we see that, that they take him, that, that he's, uh, Simon is, is, is um, inducted by the Romans to, to help to carry this cross, and, and they go to the place called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. Now, now, this is a, a really interesting thing in itself. Now, if you went to Israel, you would, see, you would probably go to a, a, a church called the, the Holy Sepulchre, and, and that basically, they, they believe that, that is the crucifixion site, and also, then not too far from that is, is the, the garden tomb, and, and some people believe that that's the place where Jesus was crucified, um, right outside of the, the city gates there kind of a thing. Um, but, but I want to hold that we don't really know where it is. Some, some say, too, that there's a hill close by that actually looks like a skull. If you look at it, it has the, the features of a skull. But the idea of Golgotha means, it means the highest place. It means the skull. It, 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 and so in Asian culture and stuff, the highest point of a person is the head. And so if you lived in a place like India or some or someplace like that, Nepal, and you were in the caste system there, and you were low caste, you would never do anything according to the head. Everything you would do would be according to the feet. So that, but the feet are the lowest part of the body, and so therefore people in low caste deal with things like the feet and stuff. But this idea of Golgotha is, is kind of this idea of a, of a, of a height, of a, a high point. And... I, I'm going to hold it. I have kind of a, more of a thought that I don't know that those places are actually the burial sites or the, or the crucifixion sites really there. What happened was that Helen, uh, I think it was Constantine's mom in 325, basically said this was the place where Jesus was crucified, and that's where they built the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, the Golgotha thing is cool, and it, and it could be. I'm not saying it's not. But it's just a, it's a hill that certainly just looks like a skull. But, but what's really interesting, I think, is that, is that the, the Mount of Olives is to the east of the temple. And everything about the temple is designed after the, the garden and the fall. And I want us to get kind of a bigger picture of what's going on here because Remember that Jesus, Jesus is, yes, he's redeeming our sin. He's, he's, he's making a path to forgiveness possible for us. But we've got to remember, too, that his redemption plan is of everything. The entire creation is being redeemed. In the end, what we're going to look at in the book of Revelation, what we're talking about is the restoration of Eden, is that God is going to take everything back to its original intention, 
So, so it's kind of like you have the garden here, you have heaven on this end, you have the cross in the middle, and, and this is history. But, but really, the end game is the restoration of the beginning game kind of a thing. So the temple itself, and it's a whole study in itself, but the temple is designed as to be this idea of the garden, as, as kind of the garden, that, that now the, the dwelling place of God was with man in the garden. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we'll see that, that, that now the dwelling place of, of God is with man again. But in this interim, prior to the cross, the dwelling place of God now is in this temple. And the temple faces east. And the reason that the, the temple faces east is because when man sinned and fell, he was cast out of the garden to the east. As a matter of fact, um, when Cain killed Abel, he was cast even further to the east into the land of Nod, it says. And, and, and so man, mankind is exiled east of Eden kind of a thing, that we see that in Genesis 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so man freely was eating of this tree of life, and in freely eating from this tree of life, he had eternal life and relationship with God. And that is the picture. And so, but now this way, again, is guarded. Why? Because of God's graciousness, because of God's goodness. Honestly, maybe it doesn't seem like that. But God said, I, they can't go on forever in this sinful state. Imagine, I mean, just think about where we're at even now today and the atrocities that happen in the world in just a moment. And if we just live forever. So, so, so God has made this thing, death has come, just like he said, and, and basically um, we see this picture and we see that the, that the temple and the holy of holies faces towards the east. God's face is looking towards the east, towards those who have been exiled. The Mount of Olives itself is on the east. As a matter of fact, Jesus was anointed in Bethany, which was east even of that, and, and all of these things are, are east. It's an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, when Israel was sent into exile, they were always sent to the east. Uh, we see that in 2 Kings 17, 1 Chronicles 9, Isaiah 27. All of these things were to the east of where they were at. Um, the animals that were sacrificed were sacrificed on the east side of the tabernacle or the temple when the temple became permanent. And the blood is sprinkled on the east side of the mercy seat. The animals, though, that were used as sin offerings were burned, and their ashes were taken outside of the camp. And the idea with that is that all sin was to be removed from the camp and taken to a clean place. So I'm going to hold that, that this is really kind of strong thought and idea that the Jewish people wouldn't have just went Anywhere They would have went to a place, as a matter of fact, on the Mount of Olives, there was, a, there was another uh, altar up there, and this was the place that the ashes for like the red heifer would come, and whenever they, they offered the sprinkling of the blood towards the Holy of Holies, they would do it from this place, and they even kept the, the ashes for the purification of the temple and for the priests in this place. So it's not really likely that... When they took him out, they gave him over 
to the Jewish people, I'm believing that they took him to the place outside of the camp that was designated for that which was unclean to be kind of dealt with and taken out. Because again, the whole idea is that there can't be sin in the camp or in the city. So if we're looking there, then everything really starts to change about this because now if Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, the Holy of Holies is looking directly at him. He's directly facing the Holy of Holies from this place on the cross. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This would have been basically kind of a sedative. It would have been something that would have numbed the pain. It would have kind of taken the edge off of everything. He refused that so that he would be clear-headed for the work that was before him on the cross. He did not take it. And it says they crucified him and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Oops. Oh, I wanted to run over these real quick. Leviticus 24, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now remember that the Romans and the Jewish people are in concert in this crucifixion. Too many times in the past, the Jewish people have been blamed, and it's been a source of great anti-Semitism in the world because the Jewish people were blamed by Christians for killing Jesus. But this is a cooperative effort between the Jewish people and the Romans. So when the Jewish people are taking him out, I believe that they're taking him to this very place, this place where they would have taken and done this very thing, that they would have brought him out of the camp and they had a special place for that, but that the Romans ultimately are going to hang him on the cross. You see, there's a cooperation there because Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. So when we look at this idea of who's responsible for Jesus' death, well, we look all around us, it's all of us, right? Right? Hebrews 13.10 tells us we have an altar, again, that altar that's there from which, uh, on top of the Mount of Olives, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Remember, the priest couldn't eat from the sin offering. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach that he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So it's this idea that, that Jesus was taken out into that place, and, and when they said little uh, phrases like outside of the gate, they, it was... I think very clear to the Jewish people what they were talking about and the destination that they were talking about. So he, Jesus himself is taken outside of the city gates for his crucifixion. He's taken outside of the city. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. A prophetic word from Psalm 22 there that's being fulfilled right here. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, so 9 a.m., and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, 
one on his right and one on his left. And, and so they've, they've, uh, Pilate has, has comprised this sign in both uh, in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic that says king of the Jews, right? He's proclaiming him king, but remember, he's a different kind of a king. He, he's not the kind of king that we think about. He, he's this, this humble king. He's this king of this upside-down, backwards kingdom in which to, to, to die is to live in. And, and so what seems like would be absolute defeat, he's going to change into victory. He's, he's crucified here, it says, with, with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. We talk about this idea, this concept of the thief on the cross. And this is just a massive picture of, of like humanity and who we are because both of them for a while are just kind of giving him the business. Why don't you come down off the cross? Yeah, if you're so powerful, if that's who you are. Notice the infatuation with everybody has with him coming off of the cross. But see, if he comes off of the cross, it's over for all of us. It's over for everybody. But Jesus is enduring this. He's enduring this. Why? Because he knows what's going to come of this. And they're, they're talking to him. You said you would destroy the temple and you'd rebuild it in three days. Well, we're going to see that he did. He did do that very thing. He took down what, what the old and he created a completely new thing. And he did it on the third day. But they're, they're, here he is, and he's beside a roadway, and uh, that's another thing, too, is that the Romans, as they went out, they were going to crucify somebody. They would crucify someone either where they were arrested or where they had worked or the road that they traveled on. So, so the, the Romans, they want to make sure that everybody is seeing this. So when they crucify Jesus, it's right alongside of the road. It's not way up on, so, up on the top of some hill somewhere away from everybody. It, it's, it's right there where all of these people are passing by. And it's meant to be a warning for others and stuff. But he's right by the road here. And there's a road that runs right from Bethany right over to Jerusalem. Another thing that's kind of interesting here is that it says, we'll, we'll see in a minute, but it says when we start to look at the tomb and stuff, what we'll see is that, is that Joseph of Arimathea owns a tomb here, a family tomb that he purchased. It's unlikely that he had it in, an undefi- in a defiled place where the Romans or the Gentiles would be crucifying people, it's more likely, and, and it's very much the practice today that the, that the Mount of Olives is the place where all of the Jews want to be buried. Why? Because it's the very place that Jesus left, and it's the place that it says he's coming back to, right? And so, so here, here we are, and, and he's beside this thing, and everybody is just saying, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come down from the cross? And so the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so just this crazy thing that the, the priests are saying, if he would come down off of there, then we would see and we would believe, but there would be nothing to believe in. There would be nothing to believe in if he came down off of there and saved himself, which, of course, would be my response, right? If people are running by me enough like that, and I hold the power of Jesus, and they're saying, why don't you come? I'm coming down off of this cross right now. I'll show you. Know, I'll show you. But this is not Jesus because Jesus is on mission. Jesus has got a purpose in this. And these two thieves on the cross, and we get more details from the other Gospels. John talks about these guys in a lot more detail. Mark is always just kind of to the point, to the point, to the point. It's just how Mark goes. But we see that at a certain point, one of these thieves 
changes his mind. And he comes to believe something about Jesus. He comes to believe something about everything that he sees going on. And something switches in him. And he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus makes him a promise. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. What, what, what is more of a grace statement for us than that? You see, I don't know what this guy had done, but he was getting capital punishment and the worst form of it by the Romans. He was up there on that cross, and guess what? He didn't have any time to come down off of that cross and get baptized or help a bunch of old ladies across the street or somehow work out his sin debt or go and make amends to other people. He had nothing. But he recognized Jesus as a king who had a kingdom. And he said, could I come into that kingdom? Alistair Begg does a great sermon on this. I won't do it justice. But he says, can you imagine when that guy came to the gates of heaven and, and, and you know, the proverbial St. Peter's there going, whoa, whoa, uh, hey, what are you doing here? Um, and he's like, I don't know. He's like, uh, let, let me see. Um, that, yeah, that's you. Um, uh, let me... Let me go get my manager. Can I go get the manager real quick? So he comes back and he's, he goes talk to the manager of Jesus. And he, and he says, uh, you know, he says, um, wow, um, so here you are. Uh, you're here. How did you get here? Why are you here? And he said, because the guy in the middle cross said I could come. And honestly, that's all we have. That's all we have. Is, is we've either made that distinction, we've either come to that place that said he is who he says he is and there is no other, and we've trusted and we've believed on that, or we've continued to mock and sit on the sidelines. And, and it's just a contrast of humanity. Some continue to mock, and, 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 and some, like me, mocked for a long time, but then, wait, wait, wait a minute, there's something to this guy, and, and, and to turn and to, to come to him. And when the sixth hour had come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We see a prophecy of that in Amos 8. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And so Jesus, it says that, is that he, the ninth hour comes, there's, a, there's darkness from noon until the ninth hour or three o'clock. At three o'clock was the time basically when the high priest would offer the Passover lamb for the people. And, and here Jesus is at three o'clock. It says that he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we get really troubled by that. That Jesus basically has become now the sin bearer, that the sins of all of humanity, every vile thing that human beings have done for all of history past and all of history future is now on him. The perfect son of God, the one who has known no sin 
ever is now bearing all of that sin in his soul. And he has become the curse for us. Deuteronomy 21 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you ever wonder how a holy and just God could put the sins of the world on his sinless son? It's because there was a clause given a long time ago. He who is hung on a tree is accursed. So at the point in time that the Romans placed Jesus up on this tree, the cross, he becomes the curse. And the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon him. He bears the sin. He becomes the sin bearer for the world. And and he's dying a death now like no one has ever died before. His death is physically painful, and many people have endured incredibly physically painful deaths. But no one has ever known the burden of the weight of sin on their spirit and on their soul. And so Jesus, as he cries out, it's because now the Father has turned his back upon him. He has become sin, and the wrath of God is now on him, and the Father has now turned his back on him, and now Jesus is alone, and aloneness It's the first time that aloneness has truly ever happened, ever. We've felt alone. We've never been alone. For all eternity past, the Son has known the relationship with the Father and the Father, the Son, and the Son, and the Father, the Spirit. And they've been in perfect harmony and relationship, in a love relationship for all eternity past. And now that's been broken. And now the Son The Father has turned his back on him, and Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, they say, behold, he is calling Elijah. And they filled a a sponge with sour wine, they put it on a reed and gave it to him, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. I don't know why they're saying that. It could be that they thought he was saying Eli, which would be more like Elijah and say Eloi. Um, or it could be that they're mocking him still because Elijah was supposed to be the front runner to the Messiah. And they're saying, if you're really who you are, maybe, maybe uh, Elijah will come and take you down off of here. I don't know. He breathed his last. It says he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Uh, The Gospel of John says, he says, it is finished. And he died. And God died. God really died at that point for you and I. And it says that he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, this tapestry that was, was in, the, in the temple, it, it's, not, it's not just a curtain like we think of a curtain. It's a tapestry. It's a woven tapestry. It's about four inches thick. 
It took like a hundred priests to hang the thing up into the holy place. It's incredibly heavy and it's incredibly strong. It's made out of purple, blue, and crimson weavings. And it's ripped from the top to the bottom, signifying that where God was separate, where we were separate because of our sin, where we weren't, didn't have access into the holy place anymore, that now that that has been opened up and that God has done it from the top. And that he's made a way now where sinful people can be in the presence of God. Everything is dark at this point. A guy named Thallus, which is a, was a hist, uh, he wrote history of the Eastern Mediterranean, Mediterranean world. Um, his writings are actually lost to us, but there's a guy, uh, uh, Julius Africanus, who references his work later on in about 221 and he had recorded this. He says, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness. And the rocks were rent by an earthquake. And many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Whoever is hung upon a tree is accursed. This guy then points out and he says, truly, this was the son of God. Remember, we had the deal last week where Pilate is saying, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the father, the one who claims to be the son of God. And now this centurion says, this man truly was the son of God. And it says that there were women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And they followed him and they ministered to him in Galilee. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And they're looking on. And, and so it's this picture, it's this, it's this thing. Remember that he's, he's been crowned with a crown of thorns. This is the diadem that, that he wears as king. And remember one of the curses... All the way back from the garden was that thorns and thistles would grow. And remember, we're talking about that he's redeeming not just humanity, but he's redeeming the entire creation. He's restoring it to its original intention. And he wears a, a crown of thorns as the king of this thing. He's redeeming the whole scenario. You see, here's how it is. He's suspended between heaven and earth. He's making intercession for us on our behalf between earth and between heaven. And you see where Adam had come, and Adam, before a tree, was disobedient. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was, he was disobedient before this. But what do we see here? We see that Jesus is obedient. He's obedient, it says in, in Philippians, even to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And so now this tree of his death is once again the tree of life for us. See, he bore our curse so that we could be free of it. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, now this is Old Testament, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, for an only son, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we who have stood guilty have now been declared innocent because of this. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, just like he said he would be. And do you know what the joy was that he endured the cross for? It was you. It was you and me and a relationship with us. It's the joy that was set before him was going to be the result of his work. The completed work of the cross was the joy that he endured it. And this king of the universe despised all of the shame that went with the cross on our behalf. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who had convicted him, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, who had found something, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoned the centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was. And so because of all of this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's an interesting thing that the crux of the Christian faith is about the cross. It's not about how good you've been. It's not about how bad you've been. It's about what's been done for you. It's about how good God has been on our behalf and what he did so that we could have life. That he took all of the sin upon us, so upon himself, so that he might make possible that whosoever would trust and believe in him could come to him could enter into the holy of holies, the, 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 the place that, that, that no one could enter except the priest and him only once a year. It's open now. There's, there's, a, there's access for us for a relationship with God. But you know what? He's made a way, and on his end of the deal, he said yes. But what he wants is a love relationship out of you and I. And for a love relationship to be a love relationship, it takes two to say yes. So he waits only for our desire to be in relationship to him, our yes to this offer of salvation. And when we say yes to this, it all changes. Forgiveness is granted. The Holy Spirit comes in. 
God begins to move and work and, 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 and change, our, change our perspective and our, our, our living, the way we're living, the things that we're living for, who we are. We understand our identity. We're, we're given a mission, a vision, and a purpose for our lives that we never could have had from the world. But you got to say yes. And, and so if you're here and you've just, you've never done that, maybe you've never made that exchange, maybe you've never understood why Jesus died, he had to die. Only God and only the the incredibly valuable blood that he had to shed was capable of making this possible. You and I, it's impossible for us. We could never do this on our own. We would be completely in the dark and without hope apart from Jesus. So Lord, we thank you that you endured this cross, that despised, you despised the shame, that for the joy set before you, knowing that you would have relationship with your people, knowing that you were making possible a way that you endured this cross and this shame and the pain and, and the, the, the sin of the world upon you. And you made a way for sinful people, a person like me, to have life in you. So Lord, we're, we're indebted. You, we, we could never make up this debt. We could never work hard enough or be good enough to, to even come close to, to closing this gap. But you're not asking us to. You're not calling us to that. You're simply calling us to relationship to you and to allow you then to, to, to work out of that relationship to, 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 to create the fruit that you want to create in the world around us. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would not be a harder working people, but we would be a more surrendered people that we would surrender to you harder and harder day by day, and that, Lord, you would do a work in us and in this church, that, God, you would truly make us a great commission church, that you would put discipleship on our hearts, that, that we would be all about it. We would recognize that there is a need, that there is a world out there that is so broken and so lost and so in need of some hope. Lord, I'm praying your blessing over, over Christian as he goes to Argentina next week, and we're just asking, Lord, that you would just set up all kinds of divine appointments for him. Lord, we're praying for every Bible that goes over there. We're praying, Lord, just for, for uh, any, uh, any funds, anything that, that is a part of that, that you would bless it and that you would grow your kingdom through it. So, Lord, help us that we would just seek you and your kingdom. We're so grateful for the cross. We're grateful for all that you've done, and we pray and praise you. In the name of Jesus here today, amen.